0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Ruth uh, chapter 3. While you're turning there, I just want to say I really appreciate a lot of the insights I've gained from David Strain on this text. It's been most helpful. Uh, But uh, before we look at this, let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much uh, for Your Word. And as we have just sung today, Lord, that is really our prayer for that humility Lord for a renewing of our mind for the many other things that we have mentioned Lord Jesus we know that these things cannot happen purely by the word of men but only can happen as your word is received by faith and so we pray this morning for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts God would you please touch us the very core the center of who we are that we would trust in you Lord, that we would turn and rest in you alone. We thank you, Father, and pray these things in your name. Amen. When people think of the book of Ruth, I think they oftentimes think of it as a love story between a man and a woman. And there is a certain sense in which that is true. But more accurately, is it is a love story between God and His people. And as we continue to... To look at this uh, uh, account, I hope you begin to appreciate God's agenda for the welfare of His people, that God loves His children and God pursues them, that God works in the circumstances of our lives, brothers and sisters, that He might draw our hearts ever closer to Him, And we we see that work in all of the characters, in Ruth and Boaz, but especially we see that work most obvious in Naomi's heart. Uh, As we mentioned last week, it seems that Naomi's heart had begun to change some as she had seen God work. Her bitterness had had lifted at least to some degree and she was now full of hope as we come to the end of chapter 2. And so she advises Ruth you know, she sees that there's a kinsman redeemer in the picture. Stay close to this man, Boaz, and, and be with his women, the, those that were in the field working. And let's see what happens. You know, she's sort of hopeful. Well, some time has gone by and they, the Lord has provided for them the grain that they need through the work that uh, Ruth had done, but no husband yet. And so uh, we look at the words that Naomi speaks to Ruth, And she says in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, Naomi begins to take her eyes off of herself and to care deeply for the welfare of Ruth. So I want to take just a moment, sort of do a side note, if I could, a sidebar here, you know, about bitterness. You know, when you think of someone who is bitter, or maybe you've walked those dark waters yourself of discouragement and depression. You know, what happens when you get discouraged and you begin to become bitter? What happens is, is that your focus begins to be narrower and narrower and narrower until the focus is only upon three people in the world. And that is me, myself, and I. You know, and we just sort of get down in that dark time and we don't see really anything else but that. And as a result, we become bitter and we become depressed. But the key to overcoming this is to see the Lord's hand at work in our lives, even in the difficult circumstances of our lives. But if we're really honest about it, sometimes we are so weighted down with the circumstances of our lives that we don't even have the ability to lift up our face to heaven and to behold our Savior. But the good news is that our Savior doesn't trust, doesn't leave us to that. He doesn't leave us to try to dig our way out of that. He works within the circumstances of our lives, much like he did Naomi, to lift her face up himself with his own hands that she might behold the glory of who he is and see him as he is. And as a result, you see now a sense of hope in her and and, you know, whenever there's hope, it seems like there's plans for the future. Whenever there's bitterness and depression and discouragement, it seems like the heart doesn't even think about the future. But we see a sense of hope here. And so, now, what is it that Naomi is really desiring for Ruth when she says, I want rest for you? Well, if you look at the book of Judges, and I'm going to give you a whole list of scriptures, so we're not going to turn there, you can just write these down. But if you look at Judges uh, chapter 3, verse 11, uh, 330, 531, and 828, you'll just see over and over and over again that during the a period when the book of Ruth was happening, the circumstances of the book of Ruth, that when Israel stayed faithful to the Lord, the Lord gave the land rest. And that's what Naomi wants for Ruth. She wants a sense of rest, she wants that security. She wants that peace for her life. She wants her to be able to have a family and a husband and all that goes along with that, not just to be living with her mother-in-law and providing for her mother-in-law. And and Naomi knows that there is a provision to make that happen. And we see that in verse 2 where where Naomi says, Is not Boaz our relative? That's that close relative, that kinsman redeemer, who could uh, redeem them. So uh, Naomi is hinting that He is the one that can fulfill the role of a husband and provide for the maintenance of the family and preserve the family inheritance of the land. And so Naomi says uh, to Ruth, I have a plan for you. I I want you to have these things. I I want you to have the best of life. Now, unfortunately, it's not necessarily a good plan that she has, as we're going to see here in just a minute. Uh, so, the first point I want us to see is that sometimes uh, we see sin even in a believing heart. We see sin even in a believing heart. And we see that in Naomi's life. You know, she, he, she has a, a plan, but it's a somewhat risky plan. You know, and the, the conversation that Naomi has with Ruth might have gone something like this. You know, we don't know for certain, but she might have said, Ruth? You know, Boaz is our kinsman-redeemer, right? Ruth's like, right. Well, Boaz is working tonight in the threshing floor, right? Yeah, that's right. And he and the others will be celebrating? Yeah, that's right. Well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I want you to get it cleaned up. I want you to put on olive oil or whatever you know, scent that you might need. And then I want you to put on your cloak and go down there and, and be on the threshing floor. Now, it's interesting, that word cloak is uh, sort of a a challenging word to understand in this context at least because a cloak really was a burlap uh coat or covering, you know, that we would put on. And yet it's interesting that, that many would interpret this to mean a dress, you know, or something that would be uh uh well I heard one preacher say uh, you know, Naomi wasn't asking Ruth to go down and be seductive. She, she really was telling her to put on her uh, her winter coat, which would make her look sort of like the Michelin man. You know, and that's literally, that's what that word means. But the challenge is, what does that mean in the text? Because that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in in one way. And as a matter of fact, it it is interesting as you go through chapter three, some of the interpretive challenges that are there. <clears throat> Excuse me, But I think some commentators go too far the wrong way and suggest that what Naomi was doing was coaching Ruth on how to dress to seduce a man. That Naomi's intent was for Ruth to entice Boaz to desire her. And that really that what she was asking her to do was to go have a sexual escapade. Now, like I said, it's, it's sort of difficult to sometimes understand what exactly uh, is meant by every phrase in Ruth chapter 3. But I think to take the passage to mean that would really go against the context of this. Because uh, Ruth, as you look at how the author has described her, he has described her as a very godly woman. That she was one who would forsake her home and follow her mother-in-law. That Ruth placed herself under the protective wing of the Lord of Israel, as we read in chapter 2. And even in chapter 2, Boaz talks about how her reputation had preceded her. He's like, oh, I've heard of you. I I know what you have done for your mother-in-law. So it's something where uh, she walked such a godly life that even others had heard about it as well. So what is it that Naomi was really asking Ruth to do? Well, in Jewish culture, a young widow had certain clothes that she wore during her time of grieving. They usually were black or sort of dark in color. And so uh, as she wore those clothes, you're sort of sending the signal of, I'm not interested in anybody. I'm still wrestling with the fact that I have lost my husband. And so what Naomi was really asking her to do was to take off those clothes and and to put on uh, clothes to show that her mourning was over, so it wasn't so much that she was seeking to ask her to go and seduce Boaz on the threshing floor, but rather that she was saying that if you're interested at all, you don't have to keep your distance any longer. <coughs> Excuse me. So there was a message that we, she was seeking to send, but there's some moral uh, dangers in this plan that Naomi has as well that I think we need to consider you know as as Naomi sends Ruth down to the threshing floor the natural question that comes to a thinking person is if if Naomi wanted to know if if Boaz was interested in Ruth why did she not just go approach him in the daytime and say what do you think of my daughter-in-law Ruth and and have a conversation that way and talk about it why is it that she sent her you know under the cloak of, of darkness to go And to be uh, with Boaz, well, you know, by doing so, Naomi was putting Ruth in a very difficult position. I mean, we've already read a couple of times in chapter 2 that the men who were workers in the field sometimes would take advantage of the young ladies, would even assault them. We see that in chapter 2, verse 9 from Boaz's lips, and then chapter 2, verse 22 from Naomi so now, all of a sudden, Naomi, maybe because she's impatient with god's plan and sees a possibility for uh, uh them to think up a way to sort of help God in his plan to maybe provide this uh kinsman redeemer, sends her down, sends Ruth down to uh, approach Boaz, and then also, if you take uh, the evidence that you see in Hosea chapter nine, verse one. Uh, we learn in that passage that sometimes prostitutes would go down to the threshing floor where they would uh, practice their trade, I'll put it that way. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't uh, something that a decent woman would go down and do. So, Naomi's counsel... You know, reads a little bit, almost like more like the counsel of a pagan parent than it does a, a godly parent. And I think that we need to remember that uh, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that sin no longer sometimes suddenly flares up with a renewed vigor and force when everything seems to be uh, quiet in our lives. I mean, have you ever had that time where you're walking with the Lord and you feel very strong and you think spiritually? I don't want to say you feel invincible, but you know you just think, you know, I've been walking with the Lord, been having my quiet times, my prayer life has been great, and life has been good. And then sometimes, just sort of out of the blue, then you encounter these temptations and just sort of knock you off your feet. And I think we need to understand that sin, sin may sometimes, you know, slumber long and appear quite subdued in our hearts, but then at just the right time, Satan does attack oftentimes when we're off guard. And so we need to take Naomi's example to provoke us to watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. For the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, we need to be on our guard and don't think that just because you've come to know Jesus that the battle with sin is over. And we must be careful. But we also see in verses 6-15 through sort of a, a rest Uh, here as well for the restless heart you know Ruth does exactly what her mother-in-law tells her to do she waits until Boaz is asleep and then she goes and she uncovers uh, his legs and lies down now this is probably a strange custom to most of us I don't know many people who do this today and at midnight Boaz rolls over and he notices that there's a woman at his feet and so he asks a very logical question who are you? you know wanting to know what is going on and Ruth said I am Ruth your servant spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer now I want you to notice something at least from what the author tells us in in this book this wasn't in the script for Ruth to say this she's not supposed to say that she was simply supposed to present her to Boaz and just see what happens next at least that's what Naomi said But it turns out that Ruth has much better moral instincts, I think, than Naomi. And she tells Boaz why it is that she is there. And let me just sort of explain this, because this isn't language that we still use. Kids, what would you think if someone said to another person, Spread your wings over your servant. Does anybody here have wings? No. No. We don't have wings, so what, what would that mean? Well, it's sort of a, a double entendre because it can be translated another way too as well. It can be translated, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now that still doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But uh, one thing I want to make clear is he was, she was not seeking to seduce him. It's actually a phrase that's used more commonly in the Hebrew Bible uh, to propose marriage. Ruth was saying, in essence, hey, would you marry me? Okay, which was quite remarkable in and of itself that a woman would do that. But turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, if you would. and verse 8, we see that God uses the same expression to describe his covenant relationship with his people Israel as his betrothed. So let me read Ezekiel 16. When I passed by, this is the Lord speaking, by the way, speaking to Israel. He said, when I passed by you and again saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. In other words, God is saying to his people, I'm going to spread my garment over you to claim you, to protect you, to cover your nakedness, to make that commitment that you are mine. And so when Ruth comes and she says, please put the corner of your garment over me, spread your wings over me, she was saying in essence, would you marry me? And, and she explains why she does that because if you look at the end of verse 9, she says you are a redeemer. In other words, this is your duty under the law of Moses, you were qualified uniquely to rescue me, and so I look to you as my redeemer. Now, I don't know what Boaz was thinking, but you know that surely would have to take a man a little bit off guard to, to have a woman do that, but it was also a risk that Ruth was taking as well, you know, because how might he respond? I mean, there is a sense in which he could have made sexual advances towards her, uh, but you know, but the opposite may have been true as well. You know, he was a man of reputation and a man of standing, and the reality is is he could have rejected her, he could have even shamed her for approaching him in such a way. And I think that what we need to remember is is that in order to experience rest in our lives, uh, we need to step out and walk in faith. You know that's what's required. Uh, as we follow the Lord, as we seek to find rest in Him, oftentimes He calls us to step out in faith and to obey Him in such a way that we want to say, "Lord, I'm not looking to be stretched right now. I'm really looking for rest. I'm really looking for a time just to, to be in Your presence." Maybe another way to say that is is that faith requires us to risk everything for rest. And I want to ask you this morning. Is God calling you to do something in your life that sort of scares you? Something that requires you to risk everything that you might rest in Him? Well, you can imagine the relief that Ruth has as as Boaz responds to her. first thing he does is he blesses her. He interprets her interest in him as an act of chesed, of covenant faithfulness and love towards him. You know, he says, look, you could have gone after the younger guys, whether they're rich or poor or stronger or whatever, but you didn't. You pursued me. And he said, so he goes, I will do what you ask. And then in verse 13, he goes, but there's a problem. He said, I'm actually not your closest kinsman, Redeemer. There's one actually that's closer to me. But he says, I'll tell you what, he said, I will commit myself with a solemn oath and a promise that one way or another to make sure that you guys find rest, you and Naomi, because I will go and I will talk to this man and we'll get this squared away. And if he does not redeem you, then I will redeem you. And of course, Boaz reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our close redeemer, in whom we find our rest. You know, uh, the famous prayer of St. Augustine, Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee. And maybe you're here today, and you're restless. Maybe you feel a little unsettled in your heart. Maybe you feel like you're, you're sort of wandering. You're aimless, hopeless, and maybe purposeless. You know, maybe you look good on the outside as you're sitting in the chairs in church and everybody looks around and says, oh yeah, they don't have any problems. But maybe deep down you are wrestling with things that it would scare you if you felt like other people knew what it was. And the reality is is that you will always be restless until you find your rest in our Lord and Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And so Jesus says to you, come to me. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for restless hearts is the offer that Christ gives to us. But He calls us to step out in faith and to trust Him and to do those things which He calls us to do that may scare us to death because it doesn't feel like they're going to end and rest. And then finally, we see sort of the fullness of an empty heart in verses 14 through 18. So, Boaz is very concerned for Ruth. Doesn't send her back in the middle of the night, but tells her to stay there because otherwise she's going to have to go all the way back to the city after dark where it would be dangerous. You see, the threshing floors were oftentimes outside the city on a hill where it was very windy because kids, what they would do, they would get these stalks of grain and they would take and they would hit them with a hammer to crush and to knock off the little pieces of grain off the end of it well with that would come the chaff and all the other pieces of stalks so they get rid of the stalk, and now they have all this grain with all this yucky stuff mixed in with it so they would take and scoop it and throw it up in the air and they'd be in a real windy place where the wind would blow that chaff away and uh, and all that would fall to the ground would be the grain and when they got done they had all the grain that they wanted and they pile it up in a pile And so, you know, uh, Boaz knew that it wouldn't be safe to send Ruth back into the city. So he tells her to spend the night and then uh, early in the morning, when it's a little bit easier to see, but not so light that people could recognize her, he has her get up and she goes into the city. But before she leaves in verse 15, he tells her to come here and he says, Take your cloak. She takes her cloak, and he puts six measures of barley. Now that's an enormous amount. I mean, it's almost actually like a ridiculous amount. Uh, and if you look at verse 15, you see that he lifts it up, and he puts it on her. You know, so this would have been a heavy, quite a hefty load for this woman. And so here is Ruth going home with this huge uh, weight of barley on her back. And she gets home, and her mother-in-law asks, "Well, how did you fare, my daughter?" and in reply Ruth you know lays this massive amount of grain down and then she says sort of the punchline or uh, something that's very ironic in verse 17 look at this she goes these six measures of barley he gave me gave to me for he said to me you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law now what's interesting about that is earlier That's how Naomi described herself. You remember when she came back from the land of Moab, she came back bitter, she came back angry, and bitter against God for he believed the way that he was treating her. And she said, I I went away full, but I have come back what? Empty. I have come back empty. Well, see, in one sense, Boaz is sending her that message that you are not empty. He wanted to make sure that she wasn't empty-handed, but that she was full. And in one sense, Boaz was sort of sending the message that you don't need to manipulate the circumstances in your fear, in your life, but you can trust the Lord to provide. And so that that grain, that barley, was sort of like a, a visual aid of what it is that God does in providing for us. And Boaz will change not just Ruth and Naomi forever, but he wants them to see that what he gives them will be a fullness. There will be a sense of of overflowing. And then in the last line of the chapter, we look and Naomi finally gets the message and she gives up her scheming and her bitterness and she says, let's just wait and see what the men do. There's a sense of where she finally is able to rest. And I wonder about us today. I wonder if we worry about tomorrow. I wonder if maybe even past painful experiences has made some of us fearful about the days ahead. Maybe even we've gone to struggling with the Lord and um, having difficulty trusting in Him. That's where Naomi was. She was empty and the Lord here is signaling to her that if she would but trust him and his agent, his redeemer Boaz, her emptiness would be filled. Now, there's no promise in all of these things that the Lord is going to take away all of our sorrow or all of our praying or all of our difficulty. There's no such promise because we know that it's in the midst of those difficulties that sometimes God works most closely to draw ourselves back to him. But there is a promise that emptiness will never again characterize your heart if you trust in Jesus. That no matter what you go through, there will never be an emptiness. Because Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life in its fullness. Life more abundantly. I will fill you up with overflowing. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the greater Boaz and He wants to signal us that He means business with, this, with our hearts. That He will deliver us. Now, what is the sign that Jesus gives us that He will keep His promise? You know, when every covenant is made, there is a sign, right? Well, what is the sign that we have in Christ? It's not a, 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 a load of grain, is it? But what it is, is it's the cross in the empty tomb. It is to show us that He is a God who not only makes those promises, but He is able to keep those promises. He gives us not a portion of barley for you, but He gives Himself to us to show us that His promises are true. So if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but how will He not also, along with Him graciously, give us all things, as Romans reminds us. So is there a deep lacking in your heart Is there an emptiness in your soul? If so, King Jesus is able to feel that. There is a fullness for empty hearts in Jesus Christ. There is rest for restless hearts in Jesus Christ so that when persistent sins come upon us to tempt us, as they raise their ugly head, we may know where to turn in our time of need. And not just to turn to one another. I mean, it's good that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that can walk alongside us. And certainly we don't want to turn to our own strength because we know that we are weak and that we will fail. But we must turn to Jesus, the Redeemer, who is the closest of all, that He may be the Lord that ministers to us and fulfills His promises. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a time of silence and meditation. Jesus, it's so easy as we sit here on Sunday morning in these comfortable chairs to to think, oh, but I trust the Lord Jesus. But God, as we get into our weeks and by the words that we speak, and by the actions that that we do, uh, we betray the fact that Lord, our heart 's not always set upon you sometimes God we even look to, to idols and to other things in our lives to try to find a sense of rest and a sense of peace, a sense of commitment. But I pray, Lord God, that you would so work in our hearts, even to bring to mind the things that were spoken today. And to be reminded that the promise of rest only comes in you even as we struggle with sin, even as we are are tempted in many ways and hard-pressed, that God, that you give us what is good, that you give us yourself and that you have given us the sign of the cross and the empty tomb to show that you are able to keep those promises. Oh Lord, please cause us to turn our hearts ever more to you, to delight in you. Lord, may the joy of our hearts, may the joy, oh God, of our hearts be contagious to those around us as they not only hear us speak of our Lord, but see the wonderful things that you do in our response to you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.